Welcome back to another episode of Product Love, hosted by Eric Bodick, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Pendo, a product experience platform. Every day we use different kinds of products to help us go about our lives. Behind each product is a product manager who has carefully built something they hope their users love. This is Product Love, the podcast where we interview product managers and explore the craft of product management. Welcome over to Product. Today, this morning, I'm here with Scott Belsky, who's an author, investor, chief product officer at Adobe, and entrepreneur. Scott, will you give us an overview of your background? Sure thing. Well, let's see. I've always been a product obsessive. I love design, and I've always been trying to find the intersection of technology, design, and business. And that led me to found a company called Behance back in late 2005, early 2006, with a mission to help organize and empower the creative world. And people always said, wow, you know, good luck with that. But um, it was a journey. There were about five years of bootstrapping, two years as a venture-backed company. Uh, long story short, we built a uh, product called Behance that is a, almost like a LinkedIn for the creative world, among a few other products for creative professionals. We were acquired by Adobe in late 2012. Spent three years there overseeing Creative Cloud services and helping the company transition from products into service, and then left for a brief stint as a full-time investor before returning as chief product officer two years ago. And then over the years, there have been a few side projects. There's been my investing and uh, early stage startups helping them, mostly design product-driven companies. Uh, And then there have been two books, Making Ideas Happen, all about helping creative teams be more productive, and uh, The Messy Middle, which is all about the volatility of the journey that we tend to not talk about, but truly defines everything we do. Awesome. Thanks. That's a great overview. Can we dig a little more into the story of Behance? What compelled you to start the company? Well, I mean, for me, it was a sense of frustration. I uh, had a lot of friends who were architects or designers or illustrators, people who define themselves as creatives who always expressed struggle. They always felt like their careers were at the mercy of circumstance. They always felt disorganized and taken advantage of and felt like they never got attribution for their work. When I got a group of these folks together and pitched them on this idea of a almost like a professional social network for creatives, they said, that's a horrible idea. We've got MySpace, we've got Facebook, we've got, why do we need another place? I have my portfolio site already. Like, we don't need that. I said, oh, okay. Well, you know, what are you hoping to solve? Well, you know, my portfolio site is always out of date. No one ever finds it unless they know me already. I never get attribution for my work. There's no way for people to find out who did what and therefore find out that I am actually the person who worked for that headhunter, who worked for that agency, who worked for that bigger agency, who worked for that client. And also, you know, I never learned how to run a business when I was in design school and now I'm basically running a business. You know, these were the sorts of responses that we heard as an early stage team in the space. And so we realized it was one of those first moments where, first of all, we didn't do any more focus groups after that. And the second thing is we were like, wow, like this is a perfect example of a community of customers that you know don't realize that what they need is what they don't want. And so we did build Behance to be a platform for creative shows and discover creative work, but we did it in a, you know, in a very different way than what was out there already. Now, is it hard building a product for customers who it's something they need but don't want? Yeah, it is. because. Um, but I think every new product is essentially not wanted because people don't like change. No one likes to adopt a new way of doing something. There's friction in just switching from one thing to another. 
what we had to do was in some ways pull people through their first mile of doubt in using the product through things like ego and other devices to discover the true value you know, of, of what they would get if they did engage with the product long-term. I mean, one example was we went to a lot of creators once we started to test and you know, put out a beta of the product, Behance, and we said, hey, can you come and put on your portfolio? And they said, no. You know, again, no interest in doing that. I have a portfolio set already. And we said, okay, well, can we write a blog post about you? Can we interview you? And they said, oh, yeah, sure. You know, people, so we made a blog of, of the most remarkable, productive, creative leaders, you know, that we admired across disciplines. And we sent them questions. And we would always say to them, can you send us some portfolio images? Or can we rip the ones from your online portfolio? And they said, sure. And we said, okay, like, do you mind if we, like, put them in the Behance portfolio that's linked to your blog post that we're writing about you? And they're like, fine. So what we did do is we found kind of a backdoor way to get 100 creatives that we really admired, having beautiful portfolios, five projects on average each on Behance when we launched. And so by doing that, if you were a brand new person who just stumbled upon Behance, stumbled upon someone's portfolio, and you saw that this great person you looked up to, whether it was Stefan Sagmeister or you know, someone else like that, a designer you admired, had his or her portfolio on Behance, you'd be like, wow, like I should be on there. And so it was one of those fake it till you make it approaches, I guess. You know, we weren't really faking it. What we were doing is we were kind of pre-populating. We were uh, trying to prime the pump of why people would want to participate in this community. And it took a lot of handholding. And one of the things I learned at that point in time was that while the science of business is scaling, the art of business is the things that don't scale. And that the, early, the best businesses in their very earliest stages are remarkably unscalable. They're doing things like what we did, writing a blog post for every single customer and manually doing their portfolio for them so that those portfolios was, was set the bit for what everyone else would do. When Airbnb hired photographers to go and shoot you know, photos of every single apartment that was listed on Airbnb at a time where they were competing with Craigslist, that was not scalable either. But by doing so, they set the bit for how everyone else should photograph their space when they put it on Airbnb. And so we got to find those kind of non-scalable things to prime the pump of our products. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, and it's, that was a super innovative, creative idea, right? To prime that pump for your product. Very, very impressed by that. And it brings up an interesting thing. Like a lot of entrepreneurs, when I'm talking to them, they're like, well, we could do this to get early customers, but it doesn't scale. I think people need to not worry about that in the, in the early days, right? Yeah, I think at the, um, I like to say we should all nail it before we scale it. And what does that mean? It means having incredible product market fit with 100 people that you really know, get your product now and are perfect types of customers and whatever else. And I, and I you know, as an investor, I would far prefer meeting a team that has a thousand users of their product with a 50% daily active user, you know, situation, then a company with 5 million customers with like, you know, infrequent or very poor retention. So. Yeah, absolutely. Going, I mean, going to, I think retention is one of those overlooked metrics for product teams and product leaders where they feel like retention is someone else's problem, but it's really a huge indicator of the strength and the value of their product, right? 
It is. It is. I mean, at the end of the day, there's no better measure in the value someone's getting than whether or not they come back. I think the only exception to that would be dating apps. But uh, <laughs> otherwise, <laughs> otherwise, that, that um, holds true. So you talked about Behance being bootstrapped for a couple of years, I think five, right? And, you know, not an easy time for startups, not the worst of times probably, but not an easy time. What does product management look like at a bootstrap company? Talk to me through the process of bootstrapping and, and getting to that scale. Well, I mean, the bootstrap nature of it really just means you're living within some severe constraints. And whenever you are kind of limited in some way, you always seek to refactor and refactor before you hire. And that was a saying that my head of operations, Will, would say when teams would come saying, we need, a, we need more community managers because we have double the number of members now. It's like, well, we're not going to double the community management team every time we double the user base. Like, what's your plan to refactor the way you do things? Do that first. And then they would do it and then they would be fine. And they'd come back and we'd probably have to do that one more time. And then they'd come back. And the third time it would be like, okay, let's let's add a few more people to the team. I think that when you live within the constraints of being bootstrapped, you're forced to do that in a very healthy way. It's when you um, have a lot of money from an infusion from venture capital that you start to say, oh, no, no, we'll just throw more people, we'll throw more people, we'll throw more people. And you can end up with a very bloated organization that is very inefficient. So there are a lot of benefits, I, I think, to bootstrapping. The other one is that you hire people for the right reasons. I mean, we were hiring people. We were not the best salary by any means. In fact, we weren't able to pay very well, but we would give equity. And I would tell the team, listen, it's up to you. We can either keep making equity grants every year across the entire team, or we can give that equity to an investor and have more cash and then pay you better, but not give equity. What do you want to do? And it was a very open discussion with the team because... I wanted us to all own our own outcomes and I wanted to keep us together. And fortunately, we had a, a lot of people who said, hey, listen, like these are my expenses. I mean, the conversation with my employees was literally that, like, what should we be paying? And then you can choose the balance between if you want a little less cash and more equity or you want more equity and let, you know, you let me know. So there was, there was that nuance and that attracts a person who has a lot of faith in the business. You know, someone who's just trying to get a better salary would never work with us. You know, that, that was for sure. But there were also consequences. I think that there were periods of time during Behance and that five years of bootstrapping where we had really stalled our growth because we were not willing to invest sufficiently in the business. And we still were able to figure it out. It just took longer. And so there were, I call them the lost years of Behance. Like in the middle, there were some periods of sideways motion where I don't feel like we really materially improved the business. Yeah, that, that messy middle, so to speak, to, to steal a term. So we'll get back to that. But uh, from there, you went in, and you're now CPO at Adobe, right? A, a much larger company than a startup is by definition, I guess, uh, obvious definition. Talk to me a little bit about the challenges you had scaling during that whole process. And I know you had a, a brief stint uh, where you went in and did some external investing, too, as a venture partner. But talk to me about you know your challenges scaling from you know, running product at a small company or startup as a, running a startup to, you know, running product at a company the size of Adobe. And then also, you know, talk to me about how the organization scales and changes. So both personal and organizational scale. Yeah. Well, I think the, the first, when I first came into Adobe and I was, I was still in charge of Behance. And then after my first year there, I was given the opportunity to take on the kind of nascent mobile and services efforts of the company. 
you know, that was the first time where I was now managing instead of 80 people, I was managing 500 people and you know, very different mindset. You're very much setting flags and then you're gathering or hiring road builders to those flags. And then you have to pick a few of the things that you want to get in the weeds on that you really think you can add a special level of value to. But otherwise, really, it's about people. And I think the humbling thing you realize when you're leading a larger organization is that because at the end, I always ran product myself. Like we didn't have a PM. Whereas, you know, now in my role here, I can spend all day meeting with teams doing product reviews, but there's no better use of my time than finding a great person for the right job and empowering them to do it. And, I, and I've seen that time and time again, where placing the right person and setting them up to succeed is 10 times more powerful than any possibilities that any potential I have to make the product better. And it's somewhat frustrating because I love being a product person and I love thinking I can go in and make a big difference. But in a scale of this size, I can only, again, like help plant that flag and I can help drive alignment across the teams. That's another big job that you have in a big organization is you're always trying to drive alignment. And I think that every day, my day is spent identifying misalignments and fixing them, fixing them with the right people, fixing them with the right conversations. And sometimes I have to help get the right prototype made and presented to the right people in the right context. But that's the job. It's very, very different. And I'm having fun because I'm in a new kind of terrain for myself. I mean, now I have an organization of a couple thousand people. And, you know, that's at a different, in a different level, everything I said is even more true. So it's, um, it's fun, but I love the products. I love the customers. And, uh, and that's what, that's what drives me every day. Where do you think product leaders struggle in making that transition from, you know, like you said, being able to be more hands-on with more things to more setting the flags and hiring the right people to pave the roads? What are the struggles with that? Yeah. Where, I mean, where do you think like an average product leader struggles in doing that? Is it, is it they end up building too many roads themselves, kind of get pulled into the product details, too many weeds, or you know, not hiring the right people, not not giving them enough uh, leeway to execute? Where do you typically see people struggle? Well, I think one common struggle is not empowering design sufficiently. You know, I find that a prototype is worth a thousand meetings, and yet still a lot of teams don't have design at the table when they're making decisions. They don't empower design and the product team early enough to help define the vision. And then when people are discussing what the solution is, engineers are chiming in with the constraints and everyone's shooting down everyone's ideas and you don't get to the best solution. And there's an art to it. It's like an orchestra. You've got to have certain sections play in unison in order for this to all function very well. And I try to, um, my secret in product is really just design. And it sounds sort of silly, but I always try to find the right design leaders and I try to empower them sufficiently at the right point in the process. And I try to shift the power towards design in the early stages of the process. And then I shift the power towards engineering in the later stage of the process. And I think the right, the best product leader in some ways is just a conduit. You know, a, a really great product leader. I mean, and I think about the people that I have witnessed in the role of product leader throughout my career. There are some great product minds that like talked the whole time in meetings and always were telling everyone what to do. And as a result, everyone kind of resented each other. You know, the designers felt like they were being forced to do something. Engineers felt like they were being forced to do something. 
the, some of the most effective product leaders are don't say much at all. They're conduits that are always working behind the scenes to get people aligned, and then they get the designers, engineers, and all the necessary people working together, and they're sort of conductors, but they're able to sit back. And you know, I, I would like to, you know, always I always strive to be more like that. I like that. You know, one of the things you mentioned was getting down in the weeds. So you pick some areas to get involved in and get into the weeds on. How do you pick those areas? Is it a matter of, you know, business or company need? Is it a matter of your strengths uh, or your areas of interest? Or is it a kind of a mix? When I, my litmus test for getting involved with the company has always been about, is it is it playing in a space that's sort of in something I'm thinking about? Is it a thread that I'm pulling? Are these people that I would want to work for? And you know, and then I also, there's always the question of what, what am I specifically going to add to help them out? Helping them with product, helping them build the product and design team, go to market messaging and network. And then also, you know, are they building something out of their passion for a solution or are they building it out of their empathy for the customer suffering the problem? I think there's a big difference. And I actually think that majority of Silicon Valley and elsewhere, you know, startups are founders who always want to be a founder and who are building something because they're passionate about a solution to something, but they're not really seeking and consistently seeking empathy with the customer. And to me, that's, again, like another cheat code just to triangulate your product, because otherwise you can spend a year or two baking something and it's 30 degrees off of what it needed to be to succeed. And the only way to avoid that is to have like the constant triangulation to get closer and closer to the absolute fit, right? And I think that that's only achieved through that empathy that I'm, I'm mentioning. So, you know, one thing, you know, like you at, at Pendo, we have a core value of bias to act, right? Yeah. And you talk about bias to act a lot. Talk about the importance of having bias to act and, and why it's important to companies, especially maybe at an early stage, but maybe even as the companies get bigger and bigger, right? Because there becomes more consensus building and bureaucracy that might slow down that bias towards action. That's a good question. I mean, for me, I always learn from stuff that was tried. And, you know, we all talk these days about the benefits of just trying and iterating as opposed to overthinking things. But I also, I firmly believe that progress begets progress, that motivation comes from feeling like there's momentum, feeling like you're doing stuff. And just when you stop and analyze and think too long, Inertia sets in. There's just it's harder to get going again, and I and I just think that uh, it goes back to the you know, Herb Keller's quote. I have a strategic plan. It's called doing things. You know, there's there's something to be said for just taking repeated action. You get constant amounts of data. You stay in that momentum. You stay in that stride of moving, which is also keeping your people engaged and keeping them learning. And so long as you're able to cut your losses and track back and try a different path, I think it's always the way to go. This bias towards action is also around a competitive environment and knowing that, oh, well, we should probably do something. Well, let's, you know, and let's discuss it or whatever versus let's just do it. Typically, nine times out of 10, I feel that gut instinct of we should probably do something means you should just do it and actually do it now. And even if you do it 80% as well as, it could have been done if you had waited. I actually think that's better than waiting and never, you know, and, and just get, getting fewer things done. Now, that's an interesting debate I have with people because there is this sense of, especially amongst product and design people, of perfection and trying to get everything perfect. But 
I just think you have to make a choice at some point in your life and, and determine what you believe in. And I have always believed that action you know, yields more unexpected possibility than waiting. Yeah. I mean, do you think that the community is moving that way, kind of more towards moving away from maybe more known requirements to iterative experiments that they can learn from? In the same way, you could think a parallel in engineering moving from you know waterfall to more of an agile environment. Do you, do you see that happening in product a lot? Well, what I do think people are starting to realize is that when you put out an MVP of something, everyone sort of thinks that that's just like, hey, we're going to just get started. We're going to start learning. And they believe that once they ship something, it's still just as easy to you know, make any sort of change that they learn they need to make. What I have learned that sort of is the other side of what I just said is that as soon as you ship anything, call it a beta or whatever it is, you've sort of declared that that's the mountain you're going to climb and you lose the ability to kind of search the broader terrain and find a bigger mountain. And I've seen teams struggle with kind of picking the wrong mountain too early out of the desire to be agile and be, you know, focus on their MVP and then we'll get it right once it's in market. And then they kind of realize that it's not right, but they just feel like they're too far up the path of the mountain to turn around and then end up climbing like the smallest mountain. So I think that you have to be very careful. And the way I would then advise entrepreneurs or, you know, product builders in this regard is to not compromise the thing that distinguishes you the most, like get that part really right before shipping and everything else aspire to get the MVP version of. So if you're going to be known for some particular use of data or some aspect of an interface or some way that you work with others or whatever it is, like don't ship until you get that part right. Because that's the kind of thing you really have to validate and, and get in a market with full conviction because that's what's going to ultimately distinguish you. But feel free to ship without a lot of other features and you know a lot of rough edges everywhere else. Awesome. Thanks. Well, I'd love to jump back a little bit to, you know, kind of that messy middle part and talk maybe a little bit about, you know, the messy middle as it relates to like Behance, right? Because you went through that there. Yeah. So, uh, well, Behance was very messy. A lot of lessons learned the hard way. I think that there were a lot of periods of doubt and anonymity and working on its ambiguity and uncertainty. And I, I would say if there's one thing that kind of kept the team together long enough to figure it out and become experts in what we were doing. It was the, it was the culture. It was the culture of the team. We enjoyed working together. We did all kinds of hacks to feel short-term rewards and feel the sense of progress when there wasn't any, which I'm happy to go into. It was really a, a journey of enduring the lows and optimizing anything that actually worked. So yeah, talk to us about those hacks. Talk to us about how you kept that momentum going and and got to, you know, those milestones that inspired people or manufactured milestones to help inspire people, maybe even. Right. You know, there were fun ones. What we never did is we never celebrated fake wins at the expense of hard truths. So I didn't like awards, you know, and the types of things where you would pay to enter. And that would be the celebration moment as much as goals and milestones that were indicative of our progress. So for example, we had these things called slap bets where we would make bets of when we would pass a certain milestone, like a hundred thousand members or whatever. And certain people on the team would agree to do certain things if we ever reached that milestone. And it was a fun cultural attribute of our team. I've been a lifelong vegetarian and I agreed that I would eat chicken off of one of my colleagues forks. If we pass, I think it was 150,000 members 
And then lo and behold, a year and a half later, there I was and I was forced to do this. And everyone thought that was really uh, funny for some reason. Another, <laughs> another, another fun one was we, um, whenever, whenever you would search Google back in 2007 for Behance, it always resulted in, do you mean Enhance? Do you mean Enhance? And the team was determined to no longer be a mistake in Google's eyes. And so it was one of those near-term goals getting enough portfolios in the platform, enough link backs from other press and blogs and that sort of thing that we would drive our SEO so that Behance was a real word, was a legitimate search result. And I remember the morning where, again, one of my colleagues typed in Google Behance and lo and behold, Behance was a real search result. It didn't say, do you mean Enhance? And we were like celebrated. That was like a great milestone as well. And it was in the right direction, right? It was the right thing to celebrate. And then, of course, lo and behold, like Beyonce becomes super popular in 2008, and we lost our SEO all over again for some period of time, but that was just momentary. And I think when you're leading a team through this very volatile journey, it's almost like the analogy of driving a car with your team in the backseat with the windows blacked out, and nobody knows where they are at any point in time, and they can go stir crazy unless you narrate for them where you are along the journey at all times. Hey, we're just crossing the bridge. Oh, okay, we just took a left road. Now we just crossed state lines. People become more calm. They're able to tolerate a journey without looking out the window, without really knowing where they are in the world, if you're narrating them through it. And I think that was one of the things I really learned as a leader and specifically in the product side, always putting in the context. So here's where we are. And then we're going to do this and we're either going to learn this, this, or that. And based on that, we're going to make these decisions. And, you know, this is where we are. We have 34 more days until this, you know, always narrating. And it sounds like you're a merchandiser. You know, it sounds like an unnatural notion for someone who's leading an internal team, but it's critical. Yeah, that, that is great. You know, that triggered a thought with me, right? <laughs> Going back to kind of the earliest stages when people are like, they're like, oh, you started a startup, you know, the hard part's out of the way. Like, that's the hardest part is getting started. And I always, my internal reaction is always, you're absolutely crazy. You know, uh, it's like, how do you get from actually starting something to creating something? What's your response to that, too? I mean, I'd love to hear what you think when people are like, oh, yeah, getting started is the hardest part. It kind of goes back, I guess, into this, this concept of your earlier book of like making ideas happen kind of touches on all of those components, too, right? Yeah, I mean, getting started is hard. And I think psychologically, Seth Godin calls it the lizard brain. You know, it's the part of us that always shuns away from anything new and tries to stay close to what's familiar. And the power of the lizard brain is that we all, I mean, we all have it because that's lizards, you know, we all came from lizards and that's essentially, we all have this part of our brain that is a fear mechanism that makes us instinctually run away from something. And that's always a reason to wait. It's always a reason to not start. It's always a reason to say, oh, I need to wait for a better time. I need to wait for a better opportunity, maybe next year. And I think that's why so many great ideas are conceived and lost in the minds of creative geniuses every day. It's because we always find a reason to not do it. And I think that there is something to be said about psychologically you know, taking that leap because then suddenly you go into a resourceful mode. Your ancestral brain works for you rather than against you. You know, once you've taken that leap, now it's like, okay, I got to make this work. As opposed to before you take the leap, you're always, you know, finding a reason to definitely not leap. Yeah, I can understand that. 
So it comes you know, very clear from talking to you that you're very passionate about creativity and innovation. And there's always an argument that product managers should be more subject matter experts or even sometimes technically inclined. But how and why should PMs embrace their creativity more? Well, I think every product in the world, pretty much, becomes antiquated at some point and is disrupted by something else. And the age-old question is, why do products and dedicated teams that are passionate about the problems they're solving, you know, how could they let that happen? You know, how could they let another product that has obviously less market share and less domain expertise and less experience, whatever else, suddenly come and replace an uh, incumbent product? And the, the only answer is a lack of creativity, a lack of seeing the edge that will someday become the center. And I guess the problem for a product leader is that when your center is so big and it's so thriving and it's so successful, and so you're, you're, you know, your product is right at the center of where, of where all the action is, it's extraordinarily hard to even care about the edges, even if you notice them. Uh, and, that's, and the edges are where small teams, individuals can start to tinker unnoticed and explore. And then of all of the hundreds of edges that are explored, you know, one of them ends up becoming the future center. And then the whole process repeats itself again. How do you defy that? I think it's a few things. One, it's this insistence on, on maintaining simplicity and empathy with the customer, which is very easy to lose as a product becomes successful. I mean, I oversee products at Adobe that have been in the market for decades now. And I mean, Photoshop is a super simple product in its earliest incarnation. And then it just got more and more complicated and powerful and accommodative of its power users to the point where a lot of new people would open up Photoshop and, and really struggle to use this product. And then is the answer to make Photoshop more accessible to more people without alienating its power users? Or is the answer to make new versions of Photoshop or even new entirely new products that accommodate some of the same tasks in modern ways for a different type of customer? either will do it or somebody else will. In fact, a lot of people are, and it's very competitive right now. So I think that that's, you know, that's a, the purpose of creativity innovation is staying curious about those edges that could someday become the center, allocating resources to exploring them and recognizing when you need to change everything. So if we look at qualities of effective product managers, you know, people that are going to drive this creativity, this innovation, and both, you know, push existing companies along and create new companies. And what should those qualities be? What qualities do you look for in effective product managers? Well, I look for people that get the emotional and the empathy side of the equation. And I look for people that value design and also have a tendency to ask the right questions. And I think that asking the right questions, a great product manager knows which questions to ask on the go-to-market side, on the design side, on the engineering side, on the architecture side, and the project management side. You know, you have to really be very intuitive and curious and, and constantly posing the right questions that get people to think about the right solutions. I think it's also someone who is a ringleader of the team and is never satisfied with what they're building. I mean, there's, I think there's some degree of of that that's really healthy for being the steward of a product or an experience. It's tricky though. I think at the end of the day, you have to see people in action. Yeah. Well, I know we're going to be wrapping up against the time soon. So I mean, just a kind of a few questions more about, about you, your background. 
kind of maybe bridging the gap between where we what we've talked about and more of a Scott Belsky himself. Do you think product management is an art or a science? Uh, or in my case, I think it's more of a craft, but maybe that's a cheat answer. Yeah, I know. I mean, I, uh, that's going to be hard to answer because it's very much both. Obviously, it's what I, what I can say is it's definitely not only a science. You know, there's definitely a lot of art to it. I can't pick one or the other because that's the beauty of it. It's There's a lot of rigor and process and data that drives decisions that are that makes it more of a science. And there's a lot of stuff we discussed earlier in our conversation that is more on the art side of the spectrum. Awesome. So a couple final questions as we wrap this up. Um, what's your favorite product? My favorite product? You know, I'll, I'll give an obvious answer for some people, but I will explain it. I'm just in awe of the power of Twitter as a product. You know, it's a product that has really tried and successfully been able to maintain its simplicity. And it's, I, I don't think anyone realizes how much they've learned. Now, granted, there's so much wrong about the way people are using Twitter and certain people are using Twitter and the abuse on Twitter and everything else. But it's amazing. You know, as, a, as an entrepreneur in New York in the early days, I used Twitter to follow and learn from a lot of other entrepreneurs and investors. As an investor, I've used Twitter to share my ideas and connect with other companies that are looking for early advisors and investors. I have used uh, Twitter to share ideas that I have then gotten feedback on to write books I've used Twitter to launch books. I have used Twitter to hire people all the time by following them, understanding how they think. And in some ways, I've finally curated about a thousand people on Twitter that curate for me everything I need to know every day. Uh, it's just an incredible product. And I don't think we sometimes stop and think about all it does for us. And of course, it's hard because we don't pay Twitter. Yes, there are ads on Twitter, but... It's like, what is the willingness to pay? Like, it's hard for even people to conceptualize because they don't have to. But I think it's a very valuable product. So a final question for you today, three words to describe yourself. Uh, let's see. I would say, I would say curious, creative, and impatient. That's a good selection. I like that. Well, thanks, Scott. This has been wonderful. I greatly appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. This has been Product Love. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Check out the rest of our articles and interviews on productcraft.com, an online magazine by and for product people.